And with that, are we ready, Steph? Let's do it. Let's do it. Welcome to the Distracted Driving Podcast. I'm Sean Genovese. And I'm Stefan Ash. And we are joined today by Brian Leahy. Hey there. Who is all good. Does that say all good in the neighborhood? It does. Yeah. Sorry. There we go. All good yeah. in the neighborhood. Uh-huh. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. He's got all the right. whole crew. Yeah. Uh, that is a, uh, so for those of you listening and not watching, Brian is wearing a t-shirt featuring uh, Big Bird very prominently because he's so big. Uh, the Cookie Monster. I see Bert, Ernie. There you go. Uh, really just a, a good crew from the street that is known as Sesame. That's Sean, correct. I'm impressed with your knowledge of child characters. Are you kidding? I grew up with Sesame Street. Exactly. My kids, my kids did not. I could not get them into Sesame Street. Even even the, the red furry one that nobody likes, who, by the way, was not a member of the street when I was watching the show. Yes. He was a late addition. Yes. Agreed. So, Brian, you have to tell us, what's your personal connection with the street? So, like Sean, right, I'm of the vintage where this was my go-to show as a child. And then when my wife and I had our daughters late 90s, early 2000s, I was all fired up because this is my opportunity to introduce them to Sesame Street. Sean, a little bit like you, we had a 50-50. So my older daughter loved it. Um, younger daughter wanted nothing to do with it. But I was all in. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally, I went and bought this, right? This is an amazing book called Sesame Street Unpaved, which is all about the mm -hmm. history of it. There's an, a great documentary that came out in 21 on HBO um, called Street Gang for anybody who's interested. I just... The more I rewatched it, Stephanie, it was really fascinating to me because I was kind of getting into that space of learning and development and leadership development. Amazing how much transference there is between kind of not just Sesame Street as a product and what it talks about and how it does its thing, but when you learn about the creation of it, it's a pretty fascinating story. So I know a lot of people will be angry. They kind of jump the shark. They're on HBO now. But I kind of go back, like Sean, to that original version. It was revolutionary. It was banned from television in some states because it, of what it was trying to do. And I just, I'm a big fan of that. I love it. That's awesome. I do remember that. Not to go too far down the bunny trail, but they went to topics and they introduced speakers that were on the fringe, you know, from the mainstream, if you will, yes. and talked about topics that needed to be talked about. So more power to them. Yeah. Absolutely. And who doesn't love a good snuffleupagus? <laughs> the question is, did he exist for the first few years? That was the, the mythology. Nobody had seen him and until yeah. a few years in when they actually put him on. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. I'm glad that you guys bought it over this. <laughs> <laughs> I was more of a Batman girl when I was a kid. There's some, there's some strength there, yeah. The uh, the original with Adam West? The animated series, yes. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was going where you were going with that one, Sean. I was like, ooh, the cheesy 1960s 
television show. That was before that. my time. I I don't look that good for my age. You know, that not that good. They well, have reruns. Listen, we've <laughs> we've had a guest on the show that believes that anything prior to her birth is not worth knowing. What? <laughs> <laughs> if you make a reference to anything prior to, uh, I think it's like 1993, you just forget about it. It didn't exist. So be it, I guess. Huh? <laughs> There's a lot of content back there, so maybe that's just a survival tactic. <laughs> well, I, I will challenge anybody watching, listening, including the two of you, go back and do a little research on Sesame Street, and you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. It is applicable now as much as it was back then. It's pretty amazing stuff. That's you know, awesome. I still, to this day, periodically pull up the counting song with the pinball. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I, I worked with a guy at Boeing who we, we, we bonded over that, uh, Steph. It's funny yeah. you, you phrased it that way because we were talking one day and he's just like, oh, do you remember? Oh, yeah, I remember. And then the next thing you know, we're on the YouTube. We find a version. And he, we will periodically just send it to one another, even today. I'll just get a text randomly, and it's a link to that video. <laughs> yeah, the number 12. You'll, you'll do it, Steph. Yeah. Google that. You'll see it. It's all about the number 12. And, and you know, the other piece of the puzzle back then was Schoolhouse Rock, right? Another very applicable mm -hmm. to the L&D world, um, kind of revolutionarily simple, right? I just made up a word, but it's true. The simplicity of it and the repetitive, repetitiveness of it really was something that um, made a difference for a lot of kids in how they learned. Well, let's get to know you a little bit further. So you've been in leadership development for a long time and you've seen a bunch of different nooks and crannies of the of the world in different organizations. How did you get into it? I always love, uh, and by the way, this is part of my secret takeover of the podcast with HR folks, but so I'm so excited okay. to have Brian here. But no one ever usually says, when I grow up, I wanna be an HR person, unless this was you, stop me. But you know, how did you find your way into leadership development? Yeah, by accident, a little bit. I'll, I'll go even one step further. So for both of you, right? My, I watched my dad work for 30 plus years at what was then McDonnell Douglas, which became Boeing. I was anti-corporate because of that. I'm like, no, I don't want to get into corporate. Um, eventually I did. And I was just sort of on the business side of things. I had a lot of customer facing background. So I was doing customer service, sort of running management kind of teams that are customer operations teams, did it at a couple small companies. Uh, made my way over to MasterCard in that very same space, right? My teams were handling our customers. If you go back 10 years, I was one of those people that really loved education just personally. And I always thought, ooh, that'd be interesting to be a teacher. I never did what I should have done and got the you know accreditation. And so it was always just sort of a thought. Well, then here I am at MasterCard um, in a pilot leadership development program. And my very, very good HR business partner, Wanda DeVego is her name. She knew that I had interest in coaching and teaching. And she said, you know, um, this guy who's running this program, Matt Breitfelder, is looking to build out his team. I think you should talk to him. And lo and behold, I sort of accidentally found my way into leadership development. And it was a really fascinating thing because Matt, as a leader, was willing to take a chance on a guy that didn't have the pedigree that he had. But what I did have, so the secret sauce, was 
I was actually a people manager within the organization. And so for him, he put two and two together and said, okay, I've got the pedigree. Brian's got the management experience at the company. This could actually work. And um, just a really amazing example of a leader kind of taking a chance on somebody, but also um, somebody like me kind of seizing that opportunity and, and, you know, hating to admit that you kind of fall in love with that work. But that's kind of what happened. What is, in your words, the work? I mean, the, the words obviously have the, their own meanings, yep. leadership and development. You put them together, though, and I'm sure some folks have uh, their own take on what that means. But what does that mean to you? What is leadership development as a, a profession? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Sean, because I think I know the three of us have heard versions of this asked towards us, I'm sure, along the way, which is like, well, what do you want to do? What kind of job do you want? And I always try to strip it down to at the core for me, I want to help people get better at what they're doing. And in some ways, I kind of take that really overly simplistic definition. And when I think about leadership development, that's what I translate over into leadership development. It is this opportunity that a company has to help its formal leaders get better at what they do on a daily basis, which then hopefully translates to help the people who are doing the daily work getting better and performing better and growing all on behalf of the benefit of the company. I mean, let's be honest, right? Most organizations in that for-profit space, like that's ultimately what you want. You want people basically kicking ass and you can bleep me out later if you want, but on behalf of the company, and there's a lot of personal growth that comes from that. So for me, leadership development is very simply that. How can we help people get better at what they do every day? I love that. It's not overly simple. Uh, it's clarity. Uh, it's the simplicity and clarity. And then you can figure out the details later, right? And what's the problem that needs to be solved? Yeah. Um, I agree with that stuff. It's really interesting because a lot of times, and I know you both are aware of this in an, in a corporate setting, people in, whether it's leadership development or even say talent development, learning, you get a lot of people knocking on your door and they lead with this hey, we have a problem over here, we need a training program, or we need an assessment, or we need a fill in the blank. And as somebody who's made their living here, it sounds kind of odd when I go, well, hang on, maybe you don't need any of that. Let's actually figure out stuff to your point, where, what the problem is, and then we can back our way into, right, something that makes sense for you. Maybe it is a program, maybe it's not. But we've got to be able to dig in there and actually have people be willing to go there with us. So at times the HR organization has been labeled slow to change the dinosaur of corporations. You just said something that, I mean, we all agree with, but I mean, if you're saying, no, 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 maybe you don't need training. Has it ever ruffled feathers in the organizations that you were a part of? Oh, every organization I've been in. I am, I, I joke about being a non HR HR person. And again, if you, you know, five minutes ago, as I shared my background, that's a little bit of where I get that from. But it also is because, like the two of you, having been a leader in an organization multiple times over in different settings, you want and you need what's tangible and what's useful. And sometimes what I've seen in development organizations within HR is people seem to be doing the work for the benefit of doing the work and, and proving a theory or 
making themselves feel like we're putting this great co complex thing together. And at the end of the day, as a people leader, that's not what I want. That's not what I need. I need something that actually works for me now and hopefully in the future. So yeah, there's, I've ruffled, a, I continue to ruffle feathers um, all the time, um, but absolutely in that space. Maybe that's a, a new name for the podcast, Feather Rufflers. <laughs> I like it. I mean, it doesn't quite roll off the tongue as well. It doesn't. You got Big Bird here with his, with his yellow feathers, but yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it is really fascinating. Let me just add one more piece to that, if you don't mind. So this idea of whether you're an HR business partner or a learning professional or any kind of talent professional, I at times have challenged my coworkers to not spend their entire life in HR. And a lot of people push back on that because again, I was fortunate. I went from the business into HR. I actually then took a year and went back out into the business, but then ended up back in HR. For me, that actually Steph, to your point, when it gets labeled as a dinosaur a little bit, I think that's sometimes where HR misses the boat is their kind of unwillingness to sort of bring people in from the business and teach them and let them learn kind of the HR side of the expertise while having that business perspective. We need HR people who've been there a long time, go out in the business, go sit in the seats of the people that you're supporting for a year, two, three. I actually think that would change how a lot of HR orgs get after their work. How, how do you uh, resolve that separation? Because I, I don't, maybe this is more of an observation than a question, but you, you several times referred to uh, HR and then I went into the business and then I went back to HR and let's bring the business people into HR, you know, uh, describing two very distinct entities or, or portions within the business is that is that an important distinction? Is that an important separation that needs to be there? Or is that something that needs to be changed? Great question. Um, and thank you for posing that because I've, I've given some thought to that. And I, I believe the second part of your question is actually where is kind of needing to go, which is more of this bringing together of those two right distinct spaces. Um, I don't know exactly the right way to do that because I will step back and say, from an expertise and an experience perspective, I've been in organizations fairly recently where the business has actually driven some big HR initiatives more so than I would have been comfortable letting them drive. And it's kind of ended up in a really sticky spot. So Sean, I agree with you. I think in a perfect world, HR sits in the business as part of the business and yet is still allowed to sort of have their area of expertise or their areas of expertise. Because for example, let's take something very basic like a job architecture or a career framework, right? The jobs, the roles, the levels, all of that stuff. <laughs> if you let the business do that, you may end up with an overly complex thing that nobody's gonna use, or you may end up with three roles on a napkin that again, not gonna be very useful. And sometimes that HR expertise kind of helps you find the middle ground. So yes, they need to get closer together and there's still gonna be a need for some of that expertise and experience. So that's why I say, I don't, I don't have the magic formula. Whew, if I did, 
right? The three of us would be out there um, working that formula quite a bit, I would imagine. I think that's the challenge of, you know, you've been a part of teams, like smaller teams, and there's a certain like magic and energy. It's easier to communicate. Information flows smoother. Decisions happen faster. You get above 50 people and, you know, you have to start breaking into sub teams and you need generalists and specialists. And I guess like the way that my brain goes in this topic is it's hard to, you know, when you really need specialists sometimes, especially when your company gets over a certain size and then sometimes the generalists think, well, I have an idea, you know, of what might do the trick, but we hire these specialists and everyone needs to just like work together. Yeah. Um, interesting framing of that too, Steph, because it's, you know, um, when you think about what the, what you just described, which we see a lot, right, in organizations as they grow, um, I've always challenged everybody on my teams, whether it's learning and development, leadership development, talent management, all the titles, right, or even HR business partner space. I want business people first who can think and be good in talent. And that is, again, a little bit of a difference. But to your point, that being good in talent means you might have some areas of specialty that, like it or not, a big company absolutely needs. And to your point, the bigger you get, the riskier it becomes as the chain gets longer and that specialist maybe gets further separated out from right the end user or the business unit that they support. Brian, I'm wondering if you are familiar with the T methodology. Have you have you heard of that where the t- the horizontal line is like generalist, like knowing mm-hmm. a little bit about everything. Yeah. And then the specialist part is like be a generalist in, a, in a, as much of the things as you can do and then be really deep in like one thing. And that's how you can be a really indisposable, you know, worker and contributor. Sean, have you heard of this too? Oh, Sean. Sorry, my, uh, my microphone would not unmute. Uh, I have not heard of anything described as the T. Would you call it the T methodology? Brian, Brian, what's it has a name? I don't remember it. Yeah, it it is a it's. I forget the exact wording, but T is at the heart of it, right? The letter T is Stephanie just describing it this breadth and depth. And actually, I've seen it mm-hmm. out, outside of HR. I think it's applicable to a lot of different fields. If you want, do you want depth, or do you want breadth, or do you want a little bit of both? So it's it's kind of the generalist versus the specialist. Yeah. And Steph, what's really funny is you're thinking about that and talking about that, and I'm sitting there visualizing, because everybody assumes a capital T, right? So like breath would be up here and death, <laughs> eh, lowercase t. Minimally, you need a low, in my mind, in HR, you need a lowercase t. So in other words, you've got somebody who, yeah, they have breath, but they're doing it with a nut like halfway depth when they're doing that and then if they really need to be like somebody who's truly long timer in some particular space of hr like that's cool but i like the lowercase t if we're going to stick with that letter because the uppercase t to me it's too shallow up here right because then you Mm -hmm. become the person as we used to say hey i know a little bit about everything but not a lot about anything I don't know that that's what you need either. So I'll go lowercase t and, you know, I can kind of live with that. That's really, I I like that metaphor. Uh, And it's, 
it's more than a metaphor. I mean, it's a great visualization because you know what? As Stephanie was describing that, I was envisioning an uppercase T, a capital T. And I, I like that. I like that concept of a lowercase T. In fact, there may be a future blog post there or something. <laughs> but the, the idea that, yeah, you, you want to, I mean, that's, that's really, that's really more uh, realistic. That's how it is. I mean, yeah, I, I went to, I, I went to engineering school. Uh, I now teach leadership. I was in management. Okay. Well, just by virtue of the fact that I went and studied a particular engineering discipline, I, I can't be a capital T. I'm not. I, I have some I have some specialty. I have some expertise uh, before you get to the to the crossbar. And I think that is more valuable. Um, I love it. That's a that's a great, great visual. Thank you. And now we can say that this podcast was sponsored by the letter T. Oh, look at you. <laughs> Love it. Love it.